I got two shows this weekend, and like already I'm sweating it. Mm-hmm. You want to be a puffer fish in a little pond than a minnow in an ocean, right? Again, I'm listen. You're trying to confuse me with your fish math. <laughs> yeah, I'm fish one math still for it. Yeah, well, as of today, as the fir- as this re- uh, releases, will be the first day of fish math season because <laughs> it is Black Fish Friday. <laughs> well, this is uh, Longbox Heroes After Dark episode one hundred fifty eight colon Gallifrey Birds Roman numeral eleven. Yes, the penultimate edition of Gallifrey Birds. Right, we were supposed to talk about whatever we were going to name the new thing, but I don't know. Now's not the time. No, it's not. And I have, you know, the the I could tease what we're going to do, the, a fake thing, and watch your eyes spin, but I won't. You don't get the fish now. You have to wait. No, I was I was joking about what we were going to do next next year. No. I was going to say next year me and Joe is going to be Joe makes me watch a David Lynch film and I make you watch a Ryan Reynolds film and we're going to call it Lynch Ryan. <sighs> you'd made no. some you'd made some remark a couple weeks ago on Twitter about the mm new trailer for the Ryan Reynolds there was a teaser com- yeah comic book film movie yes um i saw a poster for it when i went to the theaters to go see justice league this past weekend right and you're all ready to see deadpool 2 with me right i can't wait i'm excited <sighs> me too I, I i feel deadpool movies are our thing it's like steak and steak dinners once every 10 years Mm-hmm. And Deadpool movies whenever they come out. That's like like clockwork with us, right? So, so are we ready to get down to business here? Get down to the tax that are brass. People don't want to. People tune into these Gallifrey birds not to hear the usual bullshit that we spout off on the other After Darks. They're here to talk. They're here primarily to listen to my hot takes on Doctor Who. And whatever it is you do. <laughs> oh, it's some kind of take. I'm taking something here. You're going to take liberties on me? Yes. Um, but I'm guessing you're going first? Yes, of course. We're going to make everyone... Okay. To, like you, you have to hang in there. Oh, I, okay. I could also put time codes in the uh, <laughs> description so you could just jump right to Todd's part. <clears throat> I ain't going to do that. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. I took... This was a, you know, a regular length episode of Doctor Who, plus an extra seven minutes that, you know, which I have uh, questions about that have nothing to do with the actual Doctor Who-isms, but actually what Mm -hmm. you had me watch. But I have a full page of notes just from this one episode. Full page? Yes. And I didn't watch this one because I didn't have time, so hopefully I'll remember. Don't you have all of these committed to memory? Um, I'm not you with wrestling. I'm actually not. Mm -hmm. So... I understand but, there's well, been more wrestling matches than there have been Doctor Who episodes. There have been. There have just been. this year. Oof. Okay, so uh, this episode is entitled Vincent and the Doctor. Yeah, not Vince McMahon and the Doctor. Oh my goodness! Now, now <laughs> we're talking. <laughs> and listen, we've talked about this many, many times before. 
And it's kind of how, like, the the germ of Gallifrey Birds began, where it was Dr. Wu, the, 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 the trivia thing that we did. Right. Like, three, four years ago, whatever the hell it was. Yep. Maybe more. Where it was Do- it was Ric Flair as Doctor Who going back to different points in wrestling history to make sure that they happen. Mm-hmm. Or to prevent certain things from happening to keep the continuity of wrestling intact. Mm-hmm. Spectrox leap. <laughs> right, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, uh, the gist of this episode is, uh, the Doctor has to travel back to the days... When Vincent Van Gogh, or as they pronounce in the show, Vincent Van Gogh. Yes. Was, uh, and that's the last time I'm going to do that, because I'm only going to imagine how that sounded to everyone listening. Uh, so the Doctor is, has he been in, like, a Marvel movie? Was he a villain in a Marvel movie? As all the of do- these Doctors end up being? No, he was not in a, he was not in a Marvel movie that I know mm-hmm. of. The other one was. Right, Amy Pond. Mm-hmm. is uh, Nebular in the yes. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy films. So I'm glad she was able to watch the stink of Doctor Who <laughs> offer and actually make something of herself in the world of entertainment. Yes. Now, this is something that I notice as well, and I bring this up every time. Um, they put someone who's a featured player in the show, in the episode or whatever, the season, in a scarf. Just mm-hmm. as a nod to the, the real Doctor, the scarf Doctor, correct? Uh, yes, I don't know if they do it every season, but they come close. Mm-hmm. So it starts off, they're at an exhibit at a museum in Paris. And don't explain this now, but there'll be a point where I'm going to ask you to explain this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctor has been taking Amy to a bunch of different things or places that she wants to. And she he, she's like, oh, I think you're up to something. And he's like, oh, look at this. It's a painting. Who would have thought we would see this in a museum? Um so there's something fishy there, and then as they are, as as you go to most art exhibits, uh, there's small children who are excited to look at art. Mm-hmm. I guess this was the time before cell phones or tablets <laughs> or what have you. Um, but there's specifically a picture that the children are pointing at that we don't see of the doctor who took care of Vincent Van Gogh um, before he died, I guess, which... Uh, I don't remember if they showed the picture, but I know it definitely did not look like our doctor. Okay. Uh, there is another painting specifically of a church or a chapel or a something that the doctor specifically notices an evil face in the mirror. So he goes and he asks the curator, the guy who's running the tour or whatever the Vincent Van Gogh Appreciation Society is going on here, um, exactly when this painting was done. And he's going into a long-winded thing. And the doctor's just like, narrow it down. Come on, give me an idea. Like, narrow it down by a month. He gives it. They give each other a little of the uh, old mutual bow tie admiration society. Because bow ties are cool. No, they aren't. Um, so th- And then we're off and running. And I want to say this, you know, as you've mentioned before, and I've brought up as well, being that I'm a, a who aficionado, and you couldn't even have been bothered to watch this. Um, this possibly of all of them to date, could be my least favorite of the Doctor Who themes that they used. Okay. This just did not sound good at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you get, like, the beginning, the do, whatever it is, and then it just completely off the, the the rails, didn't like it. Right. So they appear in an alleyway, which is one of the four sets that we see during the course of this episode, 
And um, there's I, I I'm not gonna belabor them all because, and I'll kind of save my thoughts for it at the end. But there is a lot of illusions during these several days to many of Van Gogh's famous paintings. Right. Uh, they're like, oh, he hangs out at this uh, this this restaurant or bar, whatever it is, um, and it kind of looks like this, and it looks like one of his paintings, and then, of course, they move the thing away, and there it is, right? Mm-hmm. This is a trope that they rely on many, many times during the course of the episode. Uh, so they show up, and the Vincent Van Gogh is uh, he's being refused service at this place. He's offering them up one of his paintings as payment for this, and, of course... Um, this also ends up being a running gag in the show in that he is offering up his paintings as payment for stuff. And everyone's like, oh, get out of here, you madman. These are worthless. They don't even look good. And obviously, you know, hundreds of years later or whatever the time frame is, they become priceless works of art. Mm -hmm. Again, a trope that they lean on quite heavily during the course of the 46 minutes of this episode. But never too much, Joe. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Once they went to six times, I'm like, all right, I'm back in. Right? Um, so they abscond him. Uh, like, the doctor's like, oh, well, I'll pay you for your painting. And, you know, then you could give them the money. And he's like, oh, why would you want to buy my painting? And blah, blah, blah. And then Amy's like, I'm just going to buy a bottle of wine, and I'll be able to share it with whomever I want. And then that's, like, a little bit of a romantic thing between Vincent Van Gogh and Amy. Um, now, while they're enjoying their wine, I have this question for you, Todd. And again, I don't know where this happens in the timeline of this doctor and this companion. Mm-hmm. Has Amy, prior to this, ever time-traveled before? Yes, all the time. Okay. Within three seconds of her speaking to Vincent Van Gogh, she just, like, immediately is like, oh, your paintings are worth millions of dollars in the future. And he's like, huh? And she's like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, she was so star starstruck, she forgot. Like, they don't follow Star Trek rules on Doctor Who. You could just essentially go back in time or go into the future and muck with as much stuff as you want. That's not really how it works, but okay. That's how it worked in this, like, within seconds of talking. Like, she couldn't keep her composure, like, just for a few seconds. Right, but you can't just muck with anything, because there are rules mm-hmm. that that are when you need them to be rules, they're there, and when you don't, they're not. It's very simple. Very simple. Yes. So, while they're enjoying their wine, there's a shriek and there's a something outside... And uh, they go out there, and a woman has been killed or maimed or something in the streets, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe some allusions to some sort of Jack the Ripper sort of thing. Possibly whatever it is the doctor saw in the painting, in the window, the face, or whatever it is. Um, So they're just there. The doctor's kind of looking at things. He's like, oh, step aside, I'm a doctor, right? Um, So then the people notice that Vincent Van Gogh is there, and they start saying, Get out of here, you madman! Get out of here, you crazy person! Now, up to this point, Vincent Van Gogh has not... He's been acting like a normal person. Outside of not having money, he is just a regular person. Mm -hmm. So then we go to the next scene, where it's just we turn it up from 0 to 11. He's hearing voices, the colors are talking to him, um, 
he's yelling at the doctor, capture the mis- capture my mystery, and he's seeing things that nobody else can see. Now, if he was doing this stuff in front of the townsfolk, now I understand that they, the townsfolk, pronouns pal, have seen him do this numerous times. Exactly. But we don't see it. So when we are first introduced to Vincent Van Gogh, he is just being a normal person and everyone hates him. Like if we saw him acting like a crazy person, the people are are acting in kind to his behavior. I'm like, okay, what they're saying is true. He is a madman. And then the reveal comes later that he's a madman because he could see the things that we can't see. And then the reveal is what we get later on. But I digress. Right. Well, I just want to say you. I don't think from a, a story wise you can do it that way because when you first meet Vince as a as a viewer, you don't want crazy Vincent Van Gogh. You want regular Van Gogh, so you like him and you feel bad for him when he has his moments where he's crazy and the townspeople hate him for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, it's kind of like you only get to meet him once and that's going to be your first impression of him. You want, oh, I like this guy. He seems not like, not that he seems nice, like just that he's not wacky and that's the way you see him. You see him as a, not a, a good person who has these moments, not someone who has these, who's this crazy, who has moments of lucidity. Do you mm. know what I mean? And I think that's what they were going for. I guess. Mm-hmm. It's great storytelling either way. Go on. <laughs> I might have to disagree. Right. Um, so it turns out that there's like some sort of invisible monster mm-hmm. that only Vincent Van Gogh can see. And the doctor can only see by looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, this was done just to save on money for special effects. No, never. Not in Doctor Who. Right. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, the Doctor uh, asks Vincent Van Gogh to draw uh, the, what he sees. And then he takes it back to the TARDIS to use, uh, years in advance, the facial recognition technology mm-hmm. that the, I, the new iPhones have. Right, right. So but I'm sure all new iPhones can tell you all the aliens in the universe too. So hopefully, <laughs> yes. Um, so we get a cute little bit there where you know it's pulling up all these different types of birds and everything, and also a bit where it accidentally scans his face and mm-hmm. it prints out a whole bunch of pictures of previous doctors as well. And yes. I'm like, oh, that was cute. That I marked out for that when that happened. Of course you did. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to keep your composure around these sort of things. I don't. I don't. Um, so the doctor figures out that this is, uh, wh- what did he call it? It's it's some sort of, it's Rooster Cogburn. It's a, <laughs> it's a K-Fabist. What was the name of the beast? Uh, I for- actually forget. Oh my, what sort of Doctor Who I, fan I, are you? Listen. Todd, this I had is a lot shameful. To, I had a lot to, listen, my brain is fried from, from what I had to watch, okay? Hmm. I think you might be lying, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it was called a, a Crefaeus, right? Right, a Crefaeus. Mm-hmm. So, they're like, okay, we know what this thing is. Um, Vincent, you're going to paint this, this, uh, um, you're going to paint this church. 
we're going to lure it there. We're going to try to catch it, right? We're going to come with you. So on their way there. Well, wait a minute. For, uh, with the honest plan is he saw it when he painted the painting. So they figure when he paints right. the painting, it's going to show up. Right, right. Like that wibbly wobbler. There is some logic to what they're doing. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just kind of brushing okay. over it, right? Okay. The way you say it sounded like, oh, it didn't make any sense. But no, I didn't say it didn't make any sense. All right, all right. Um, so on their way there, Vincent mentions uh, that he he can tell that Amy has lost someone, mm-hmm. and that he sees her crying when she's obviously not crying. Now, something happened to Amy yeah. that we did not see, and we as a one time watcher of this episode are not privy to. Yes, it is. Um, that was what I was telling you last week when, when I get, oh, that's right. You were not feeling well last week. Um, was that she had a husband named Rory. Right. Who, who we'll get to later. Who we'll get to later, who is, uh, from, uh, Legends of Tomorrow. And he, uh, he, there's a crack in, in time and he was sucked into it and erased from everybody. But the doctor remembers cause he's a time Lord. And that's kind of why he's taking her around showing her stuff mm-hmm. because he feels bad that Rory's been erased and Van Gogh, like being able, like they're trying to imply because he can see this invisible thing because of the way his brain is. He's kind of picking up that something's wrong with Amy too, that she's missing Rory and she doesn't even know it. Mm-hmm. So, so they go there and Van Gogh's painting and they're, wait- they're waiting for the Kayfabus to show up. <laughs> and the doctor has a good line where he says, is this how not is this how time normally passes? Mm-hmm. And I thought that would, because they had to wait. He couldn't just use his, his wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing to make mm-hmm. whatever happen, right? Yep, whenever the doctor, and like almost in any form, any uh, incarnation, hates having to wait. Just he's hates a, it. He's like a petulant t- child. Mm, right. I don't want to wait. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. That's what he said in my head. <laughs> so uh, they notice the they notice something inside. They go inside, of course. There's more of them with the reflect the reflection. Um there is some decent when was this made? When let me look at the DVD of this, the DVD. DVD, I want to say 2013? No, the DVD came out in 2010, so... 10. I would say there was some good, decent effects of Van Gogh being, like, thrown around by the Beast. Mm-hmm. But again, a nice way to skirt around the special effects of things by having an invisible monster, uh, taking a page out of the, uh... <laughs> the Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, mm-hmm. where there was supposed to be this elaborate scene where... In his in his nightmare, this karate guy has a elaborate kung fu fight with Freddy Krueger's, but they ran out of money and special for the special effects budget, so he fought invisible Freddy Krueger. Oh, I've got to see that someday. <laughs> so, um, the doctor's doing his best to battle him, but obviously Van Gogh is having a much better go at it. Um, the Van Gogh impales the beast, but before he does, uh, they notice. That the beast, or like, uh, the beast stopped, stops attacking them. The beast is like going around the outside of the thing. The doctor figures out that he was abandoned here by his people because he's blind. The beast is blind. That's why he's attacking in a rage. He's not like 
killing and eating people. He's just killing people that are in his way because he's blind and he can't see what's going on. Right. Uh, it's supposed to be an allegory for the Doctor who is trapped on this world as well. The Doctor tries to sympathize with the creature. It doesn't work. Creature comes busting in. Van Gogh impales him um, with his uh, easel. The Doctor hears the Beast's last words, which are just, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, it's time to leave. Whatever evil the Doctor saw in that painting has been destroyed, of course, uh, leaving in his wake a path of death and destruction, as he typically does. Um, the Doctor and Amy are like, well, we have to leave, but, you know, obviously Van Gogh is in some sort of mental state. So the Doctor gets the bright idea that if we go and show, take him to our time and show him how big of a deal he becomes, then maybe he won't end up killing himself or continue being mad, right? Mm-hmm. Now, or at least make him feel a little better. Right, make him feel a little bit better. Now, there was another good scene where uh, he gets them to lay down with them because they, they kill the beast, and there's like 13 minutes left in the show. And right. I'm like, oh, everything wrapped up nicely. <laughs> with a lot more time than usual. <laughs> and then Ap- Apu was on the roof of Van Gogh's house crying. Right. Um, but no. So um, they he does a thing where um, the three of them lay down to the grass, and Van Gogh is describing to them what he sees uh, mm-hmm. when he looks up at the night sky, and it's his painting Starry Night. Right. And I thought that was a good use of them continually acknowledging and referencing and showing you the inspiration for all of his paintings. Right. Um, so they take him to our time. Van Gogh sees that there's like a whole wing of the, the museum um, dedicated to him. And then they go back to, the doctor goes back to the curator of the exhibit, the mutual admiration bow tie society guy. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. says, in a hundred words or less, can you describe uh, Vincent Van Gogh? And has him do it right in front of Vincent Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Now, and he does, and it makes Vincent Van Gogh sad. Um, now, you would think a guy who has devoted his life to Vincent Van Gogh might recognize someone who looks exactly like Vincent Van Gogh in front of him, not after he leaves, and the cheesy sitcom thing of looks at him, <laughs> he leaves looks at the painting of the self-portrait of Van Gogh, looks back, puts his finger on his chin, and he goes, nah. Right, because it's really Vincent Van Gogh. That's what, like, that's the first thing you'd think. Right. Well, listen, there's a, there's a guy in here who's complimenting my terrible bow tie. Anything is possible. <laughs> that is true. So uh, they bring Van Gogh back to his time. He tries to persuade Amy uh, to stay with him by promises of knocking her up. Yes, with very red-headed children. Right, she relents. They go back to our time. And they expect to see the wing is humongous now. With tons of more paintings and so much more. But obviously there is nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the only difference is in one of the paintings, Sunflowers specifically, he painted in on the vase for Amy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a that was a nice little sentimental way to end the to to end the episode as well. That it did not change his life, it did not inspire him to do more or prevent him from taking his own life. But what they did did have some sort of an effect on him because he was lamenting that he 
couldn't paint the sunflowers because they're like in between life and death and whatever it is. Um, this was just an okay episode. Okay. I love the ending with the, with the doctor and Vince Van Gogh and the, cu- the curator of the museum. That's one of my favorite scenes in Doctor Who history. But it was okay. Okay. We don't, we don't get one of the outside of being a famous, probably one of the most famous painters of all time. The thing that Vincent Van Gogh is most known for is cutting off his own ear. Right. We get none of that. Not even an allusion to that. Right. We don't need ear cutting in this. Listen. We have heart, depth. It's beautiful. I want ears. <laughs> um, so, again, it was fine. I don't know. Not the, I, I get your sentimentality toward that, but as we've learned, you claim I have two hearts like some sort of time lard, <laughs> but uh, I have zero hearts, and I cannot, def- be, I cannot be touched or moved by such nonsense. <laughs> You're definitely a time lard. Uh, yes, I, I will say this. the uh, Every time, and this is just for me, maybe you, Todd, maybe some of our listeners, um, every time that I saw the actor who played Vincent Van Gogh, Mm-hmm. I was reminded of Torgo from Manos, The Hands of Fate. Okay. He looked like Torgo, just with a little bit more kept of a beard. Okay. And not a satyr. Not Torgo's, uh, what is it, powder from Futurama? Well, I, I think for... Torgo's powder is a reference to Torgo from Manos, The Hands of Fate. Right, that's what I'm saying. It just makes me think of that. Right. Uh, mm. So Todd also had me watch two shorts, two comedic, in quotes, Doctor Who shorts. <laughs> right. Um, that were part of Comic Relief, Todd? Yes. I did not know Comic Relief was still a thing. Well, over there, it's, it's part of something called Red Nose Day, mm. where there's like, you know, they have they give away like little red clown noses and stuff, and, you know, the money goes to charity and everything like that. But yeah, it's that's because they both have, they had, they've had shorts on both of them. There was. Children in Need, and there was also Comic Relief, uh, like Red Nose Day or whatever. So, But yeah, they do that occasionally. So so it's a two-parter. Rory is there, uh, who looks like a young version of Rip Hunter for some reason. Yes, another time traveler. <laughs> I hope they meet someday in some like fan fiction somewhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, I might do that. <sighs> oh. That's what we'll replace Gallifrey Birds with? Yes, Rory slash Rip Hunter fan fiction. Right. So uh, Rory is working on uh, something with the TARDIS. And because of the glass floors in the TARDIS, he gets mm-hmm. distracted uh, recreating upskirt videos that you can see on your favorite <laughs> adult film sites. Yep. Um, and this causes the TARDIS to be inside of the TARDIS. Yep, it lands inside itself. Right, so now they're in an infinite loop where it's just um, the version of this person, whether it be the Doctor, whether it be Amy, whether it be Rory and Amy, keep coming in and repeating the loop mm-hmm. until they have to get the other to close the loop by telling the other to pull the Wibbly lever. The Wibbly lever! Mm-hmm. Say that with excitement. That one I watch. And watch yourself get on a watch list or something. <laughs> um, right. So, again, it was cute. It was fine. I'm sure um, if you were more of a Doctor Who person, you would have thought it was uproarious. 
uproarious, um, uproarious, up, uproarious. Um, That's I, funny. I did like the bit where Amy was hitting on Amy. That is one of my favorite things in Rory figure. It's like, what are we going to do for eternity with, with two Amy's? And that's when he gets slapped. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, this is fun. And, uh, you know, that, that's like peak Amy, if you know what I mean, for that series. Right. Oh, good stuff. And like I said, I gave you what you already hadn't watched. So to me, that was like not the best of the best. But I didn't want to have you rehash stuff that you had already fallen asleep to. So. So, Doctor Who out of the way. Todd, you had to watch one of the most notorious wrestling events in the history of professional wrestling. Yes. Heroes of wrestling. Right. Heroes. And all of your heroes were on this event. Most of mine were. Oh, boy. So I, I'll, I'll, go, you go for it. I want to hear your uh, running commentary on this and the whole deal. All right. First of all, it starts off. And first of all, like, um, I, I know, but it takes me, break may, breaks my brain when you see old footage of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a big screen TV and I'm watching it. And it's just like, it's like watching it like I slathered Vaseline on the screen of my TV. You'd be so, surprised they didn't do a remastered version of this to clean it up. Right. And of all they, the wrestling that WWF has purchased, somehow mm-hmm. this missed out getting uh, picked up by the, w, the WWF. Oh, they should really. Oh, you mean they don't own it or they haven't fixed it? Uh, they don't own it. Oh, they. Sh- oh my God. Right. Vince, get those deep pockets out and, and buy this. Right. The entirety of this show exists on YouTube, if you were so inclined. Right. To share Todd's uh, enjoyment. Right. So it starts out with King Kong Bundy um, picking on a guy who I don't know his name, but we'll get to that later. And he's just like, nice tux. Does it come in men's sizes? And I'm like, oh, I miss King Kong Bundy. I loved him so much. He was one of them growing up that, like, when I watched a smidge of wrestling as a kid, King Kong Bundy was one of them. And even came to, like, the CYC when I was a kid and I saw him wrestle. So there was a a touching moment for me right there. And right off the bat, you have a casino magic curtain behind them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so this is at a casino? Gambling Todd's all in already, right? So then for out of nowhere, Yokozuna which I found out later because it was very blurry and quick, comes in and just attacks King Kong Bundy, and it goes away. And it's at this point I realize the quality of, like, camera work and editing and sound that we were going to get, it it is fantastic um, because we jump to uh, just footage of like Hurricane Camille and like how it's just destroyed stuff. And they're like comparing it to this Heroes of Wrestling that's going to happen. And I think this has probably ruined more lives than uh, Hurricane Camille because it was just, it was, it was just, just crazy. But we get 2000 packed into the, into this casino, like, you know, room or whatever. 2000 packed, Joe. I was shocked. I think they might have been inflating the numbers. Just a tad. And hey, it's Mustachio, Joe. Mustachio on commentary. In a wonderful, like, Native American poncho. Right. Big sunglasses. That was part of his dirty Dutch mantel uh, uh, getup, if you will. 
Right. So, and then there's some guy who's commentating with them. And I use the word commentating loosely through this pay-per-view, Joe. Loosely. Mm-hmm. But there's some guy named Randy Rosenblum who's with him. And he, to me, like the second I see him, he looks like, like if you're watching a bad, like comedy, it's the inept public defender who has to defend two characters you know are innocent. <laughs> but are like you know getting the, the 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 rough treatment in a courtroom comedy, and he's like out of out of sorts, and that's exactly what I see this guy in this suit because he looks ridiculous. And I'm not even going to commentate too much on their commentating through it because it is a clusterfuck of commentary. They're talking over announcers. They're talking over each other. I, like I don't even know what the hell they're doing. Like, I'm lost most of the time, with very few exceptions where they say something, and I can't stop laughing at exactly how ridiculous it is. They're, they're absolutely, it, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. That's how taken aback I was by the mumbling and the stumbling <laughs> that was going on back and forth. And I would, I would have 94 pages of notes if I, if I belittled them all the way through these matches. We right, now, and, and again, obviously, this is this is during a time, this ni- this takes place October of 1999. Uh, wrestling, specifically, WWE is, like, no hotter. Um, mm-hmm. WCW was just coming off of their huge, like, just crushing WWF streak, and now WWF is just rolling, um, like, they're an unstoppable machine at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at this point, anyone who's, like, anyone who could scratch together a couple bucks... And mm-hmm. anyone who's not under WWF or WCW contract is like, well, wrestling is popular. We could just do a wrestling show. It doesn't have to be good. Just because it's wrestling in 1999, people will watch. Right. And I bet they watched in droves. I'll, I'll come back to that later. So, like, as they're going through the card, I'm like, I recognize some of the card. And, and you know, Mustachio's mentioning stuff. And he's just like, sweet Stan Lane versus Tully Blanchard. It's time to turn back the clock. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at this card. And even in 1999, I'm like, turn back the clock. It's like, more like turn back the calendar, all the calendars ever. <laughs> because there's a few, you know, people. I, I don't want to say... I think most of them are in their prime when they're on this show. Right. Is what I'm saying. So, I mean, we get Chris, Crisper Stanford, legendary ring announcer, Joe. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but he's, he stumbles right out of the gate. This is what I have. He's like, tonight, legendary grudge matches will be settled. Once and for all. And that's the way he says it. Like, he comes in like a steamroller for the first half and then, like, mumbles the second half. And then this is my favorite. Someone is going to get their ass tonight. Someone is going to get their ass whooped tonight. And I'm like, do you work for the Department of Redundancy Department? But the way he says it, he goes, tonight, someone's going to get their ass whipped. Tonight, <laughs> yes, it's like, ridiculous. It's like, it's like I'm gonna create my own. Let's get ready to rumble. Right, like with two tonight's. Yes, he's got more than one tonight, Joe. So I was, I was just laughing at this. Like right out of the gate, I'm like, holy shit! Like this is, this is already a cluster. Like mm-hmm. literally a cluster. So uh, we get uh, right off the bat. The first match is Marty Generic and Fantastic Tommy Rogers. Mm-hmm. 
versus the Samoan SWAT team, Samu and Fatu. Uh, with, yes. With uh, Paul Rogers is their manager who comes out with a towel. I'm guessing this is the famed burger towel that everybody's talking about. No, this is not but, the famed burger towel. But I figured because it's a towel in wrestling, it must be the burger towel. <laughs> so Paul Adams is dressed like the 80s guy from Futurama, if you remember that episode. So I, I do. really don't know. I don't know what he's doing with the Samoan SWAT team. Like, I don't understand how they're together. Um, I think Paul Adams was the promoter or something. Okay. Well, we get to that a little bit. But first of all, that later, the guy who is really running the show. Right. So they show. So, like, and once again, this is more of this quality, like the people in the director's room and everything. They say, like, first up. Uh, Marty Generic and, and Tommy Rogers and the smoke machine goes off. Like the guy who's operating it is, is the first time he's ever operating it. It's everywhere. Like you can't see at all. And, and it takes forever. And it's not Marty and Tommy. It's, it's Samu and Fatu. And what? I'm like, like what just happened? Like it, like nobody knows what's going on. So I, I found that funny. And then, they, like, Paul, Ad, uh, Paul Adams is saying, like, I told myself go right to the top, right to the top of Heroes of Wrestling. I'm like, yeah, this is the top. Like, <laughs> you've already peaked. I, I hope he I hope he went on to, like, bigger and better things. He's calling it Biloxi when it's St. Louis. And I don't know if that was for heat or if he was legitimately not sure where he was. <laughs> like, it was it – was, it was making me laugh. And then like Tommy Rogers and, and Marty come out and they're like, they're literally like waving the smoke machine stuff out of their face. <laughs> like, And I'm, and I'm just, I'm just cracking up. I, I, I don't know. Like I said, it, it's ridiculous. So I'm watching this, this match. Uh, and he's like, just, just they headbutt each other, and like then Dutch Mantel or Mustachio goes off on it, like who who headbutts Samoans? That's just crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, didn't like they used to like say like Samoans had the worst like headbutts in the history of wrestling or something like that? Well, that was a popular trend in the 70s and 80s where Samoans and African Americans had hard heads. Okay, I was a little confused on that. Right. Uh, very very popular racist stereotype. That's what I was gonna say. There's a lot of interesting uh, uh, <laughs> like stuff like that in this. Todd, I mean, a different time. It is a different time because you I'm gonna can't get to something. judge. Right. Um, <laughs> like I said, this match was just uh, what the Samoan SWAT team win. Um. Yes. 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 They 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 beat them. I I don't know. Like I said, it was a it was an interesting match. Like you know, not I don't know. The quality of wrestling wasn't what I'm used to you giving me. So it was an okay match. It wasn't up to the usual high standards you used to. Right. So I'm just kind of like uh, interesting. There was nothing much there other than some stuff I didn't understand. But then we get the commercial for uh, WWW scoopwrestling.com and www.heroesofwrestling.com which I could get Heroes of Wrestling hats and merchandise shockingly both of those web domain names are available I checked it oh you could purchase the web domains now yes I think if anybody really wants to bring back wait a minute 
I was a question I was asked later. Heroes of Wrestling is gone? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that at the end, right? So they mentioned that uh, now we see Sherry Martell and the animal. is It's Martell and, and Dutch's Mantell, right? They're not related. Right, no, no relation. Okay. I was got confused. So they're checking into a, a hotel apparently, and and Dutch and Rosen, Mustachio and Rosenblum are all like, "Well, they're very they're extra friendly," implying that there's some sort of intercourse going on between uh, George and uh, Sherry. But as they're going into their hotel room, George the animal Weinstein rips off her top, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, like fantastic! I miss I miss the days where you could just rip clothes off of female like wrestling people. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the match, who is Greg the Hammer Valentine, and he's in the ring talking about how he's going to beat up George and his father. His father had a feud with George the Animal Steel. I wouldn't doubt it. George the Animal Steel uh, had been wrestling for at that point for the better part of thirty years. Right. So he's like, I, you know, my daddy and I got it now. And when I'm done tonight, you know, I'm going to win Sherry from you. I'm going to take her. And I'm like, that's what we need more of in wrestling, Joe, is when you could win a female in a match. Do they do that much anymore? No. I think they really should put women up as prizes more in wrestling, <laughs> especially in this climate should go over 100 percent fine. But I was laughing at that, and like George's, I'm like, and I, I like when the announcers are just like, just like nonchalantly just talking about, oh, it's George the Animal Steel. He has a green tongue, and he has a hairy back, and he's known for ripping, tur- chewing on turnbuckles. It's like me or you would describe a car to somebody. It's like, this is as normal as normal can be, is the way, uh, how, how he does this stuff. And I'm watching them like fight and I'm like, I'm hoping, I'm hoping George rips up a turnbuckle because, you know, that's what the crowds came to see. But the match ends, Joe, by, by Sherry turning on George the Animal Steel and hitting him with a chair. I was devastated. I was devastated. I was like, how could this happen? She's with, she's with Greg now. So they leave and they go away and George goes nuts chasing him up the ramp and he comes out. And now he rips, he chews up the turnbuckle, Joe. I'm getting what I want, George the Animal Steel, ripping up a turnbuckle. And luckily, the cameraman was so good that he, I caught a glimpse of Greg the Hammer Valentine sliding back into the ring to hit George with a chair again. And oh, my great, goodness. That dastardly gr- Greg the Hammer Valentine. What? That dastardly Greg the Hammer Valentine. Well, yes, it's great because they show that, like, they show him eating the turnbuckle and the fans are going crazy because he's eating a turnbuckle. And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, this is where usually, this is the close up where somebody runs in and hits them because, you know, that's the close up. But literally they go to the wide shot and you see him sneaking in and then they immediately go to the, to the, to the tight shot on George again. He gets hit with the chair and I'm like, yep, that's the quality I've come to expect from this show. Two matches in, Joe. <laughs> Two matches in. So I was like, I thought that was, I was like, fantastic. Give everybody an award right off the bat. Um, and and like I said, George is not looking old at all. Like he's, was he wrestling much at this time? Uh, no, he's, George is timeless, actually. Um, I know George just passed away recently, and within the last year or so, perhaps. I was uh, looking it up, I think February. Right. 
Um, but he was wrestling as of maybe three years ago. Really? Yes. Oh boy. Three I bet he was taking a lot of bumps. Um, well, there was a very infamous uh incident where he was in a match with like the local guy, and the local guy's like, Hey, I'm gonna do some fancy stuff in this match, George. Uh and George is like, Sure, sure, kid, whatever. And the fancy stuff that the kid was gonna do was do a moonsault from the top to the outside onto George who was not ready for it and, like, really messed him up really bad. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Poor George. Yes. But Rosenblum says he knows that George is going to win Sherry back. So I'm sure in the in the second Heroes of Wrestling pay-per-view that they had, that he got, that, he got the better of uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine that time. Right. This feud must continue. That's right. As all feuds on this show must. So now we cut to the... To the whole, uh, to the commentating team again. Once again, I use the term commentating team very loosely. And they announced that Lou Albano is going to be the commish of this long reigning Heroes of Wrestling League. And I, I was crying because he's like, I'm going to call it, you know, I'm going to call it fair. And he's doing all the Lou Albano stuff. Like, and I'm fine with that. But then he does this, he starts crying. And Joe, it's the most legitimate. Uh, emotion I've ever seen. Give Lou Albano the award for like whatever. I don't know if it's it's a slammy for the heroes of wrestling for his acting. Sure, but but it's it's fantastic because he's just crying like oh it's so I'm so happy and it's I, I haven't seen him act this well since the Cindy Lauper video days <laughs> with girls just want to have fun and all that other stuff because. It's great. And then the announcers are trying to talk about what's coming next. And Lou just will not shut up. He's in the back talking about being the commish. And like Rosenblum's like, we're going to go to the ring now. And wait, no, uh, we're going to, we're going to go backstage or something. And all this is going on. Like Lou is still, still like, like talking and. I'm like, this is fantastic. So we get to Michael St. John, who I guess is the backstage reporter. Yes. Who right now I don't have any great like uh, feelings on Michael St. John, but there is a moment in this pay-per-view that is coming up with Michael St. John, which might be in my top five moments of all time in the history of wrestling. So Michael St. John gets some big props from me later, but, uh, I like that. While he's standing there, he's like, we're going to talk to big uh, King Kong Bundy. And Bundy just walks in and shoves him and call it like, he's like, who let Lou be like the commissioner? He's a drunken old sot. And then proceeds to call Yokozuna Porkozuna. And I'm like, oh, King Kong, or King Kong Bundy, you've won me back yet again with these great insults that you have. Porkozuna. I, I was legitimately laughing. I'm like, can this pay-per-view get any better? It, it, it just... It I just don't can't. know. This, it seems like it's peaking here, Todd. It is. And he tells... And I like he's just yelling at Michael St. John, like, you got to get closer when I'm announcing. And I'm going to give him the avalanche and the five count. And I have forgot about the avalanche, but I'll never forget five count. I, I still yell five count occasionally for certain things. Of course. Because you have to. You, you have to. 
Now, that just ends as it as as all things just seem to do in this show. Now we're getting to one of the greatest matches in the history of wrestling, Joe. It is the real Iron Sheik, not that fake Iron Sheik that you told me about. Nikolai Volkov and Nikita Brezhnikov. Right. Versus Luke and Butch, the men from Down Under. Right. But they are not the men from Down Under. They are AKA the Bushwhackers. Well, we don't own the rights to that name, so let's just call them what they are. But they mentioned the Bushwhackers a couple of times. So I'm guessing they kind of slipped in, uh, uh, with the, with what they have. So now, like, the Iron Sheik and Nikolai and Nikita come out. They come out first. And Rosenblum says that the Sheik, it, he's like, he knows the Sheik is strong. And this was some, this is one of those moments that stick out to me on commentating. Cause he knows the Sheik is capable of, at any moment of pi- being able to pick up a bull and chasing anyone in attendance around with it. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean, Joe? Pick up a bull and chase somebody with right. it. Right. Now, and I I may have leaked these in my notes. My favorite thing might be Sheik, while they're chanting USA, going into the microphone, USA, ah, patooey. Right. I was like, and I've heard you do that, like, like oh, Doctor Who, Patooey. <laughs> I've seen it now. It will be from the master. My, from the master, I, it will be branded into my brain, and I will be doing that for all things in the near future. Good. Um, what? Well, again, Good. I'm glad that you're doing that because that's right. what it, you're supposed to do. That mm-hmm. was their shtick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they were in the World Wrestling Entertainment, uh, the, uh, uh, Nikolai Volkov would sing the Russian National Anthem. Right. Uh, people would boo during the entire time. Iron right. Sheik would take the microphone and say, Russia number one, Iran number one, USA, Hachpatur, and then their <laughs> yeah. opponents would come out. Right. That so... was their, oh, you didn't know. Right. <laughs> oh, God, that's fantastic, right? So, and, and like, now, Nikita starts talking, and Joe, I thought Lana had a lovely Russian accent. <laughs> but Nikita gives her a run for her money. He's talking, I'm like, where did they drag this guy? This guy has to be from, like, Stalingrad or Moscow with this accent. Because it's flawless, Joe flawless so i'm crying he's talking about that you like show some respect we have two olympic champions here and i'm like wait a minute they were in the olympics uh iron sheik actually was he was uh 1970 he won a medal in the 1972 olympics for iran wow he was also and they if they didn't mention this on commentary shame uh he was also a bodyguard for the shah of iran no, they didn't mention I think I would have remembered that. Okay. But they may have mentioned it while somebody else was talking, mm. and I didn't hear it, So, which is fantastic. Now, apparently, I didn't know this. Did Sheik always do feats of strength before yes. the match? Yes. Because <laughs> he the, has the, the clubs. The clubs, the weird, like, 
things that you put the strap across in line at the movie theater so you have to wait in it, like the the line cue. And he picks them up and he starts swinging them over his head. And I'm like, oh, this is how they're going to fill time in this match. Okay. Because I have a feeling it's not going to be wrestling. But maybe I'm wrong. Wouldn't you you know it, Todd, that back in the day the Sheik would do this to show his superior strength and Mm -hmm. then challenge his American opponent to do such a thing. And then wouldn't you know it, the Sheik would then use said clubs to club his opponent. He didn't do that in this. I was sad. So then now, like, that's all going on. The fans are going crazy, boo. And I'm like, I love this. I mean, Sheik is looking good, too, by the way. Like, Sheik had, like, that, he almost has, like, the Vince Big Balls walk, but it's more of a broken waddle. Now, this actually is two years prior to the gimmick Battle Royal where you saw him, where we are like, oh, he's the one winning the Battle Royal because he can't, if he leaves his feet, he will die. Right, right. So this was two years earlier than that, so this is him in better shape. This is him at, at primo prime time. Right. So Rosenblum says that here comes the, you know, the, the men down under and he's like, uh, what are their names? One of them is, I, I turned Luke the page. And Butch. Like turned them, so it's Luke and Dutch. He says it's Luke and Dutch and mustachio goes nuts. He's like, what did you call him? And he's like, I called him, I called him, you know, Butch. And he's like, no, you didn't. You called him Dutch. And were you trying to infer something that I'm like, and it was legitimately funny, but I think Mustachio was like kind of legitimately mad. He was hot about being compared to one of these lowly sheep herders. Yes. Yes. So once again, out comes, out comes the men down under and they're doing their, whatever their March or whatever they call it. And once again, I don't know. It just looks a little slower than you showed it to me on one of the pay-per-views. Okay. Back in the in the 70s, I think it was, on one of the earlier Gallifreyvers. There was a there but they were the bushwhackers back then. They came out. They didn't have the same rhythm or gait that they had back when they did it. But they're still licking um fans. That's fantastic. Right, licking and whacking. Licking and whacking. That's right. what it was. So my favorite is once again, you know, with the the culturally sensitive mustachio mentions these many things that you'll find in Australia, Joe. He mentions koalas. He he mentions kangaroos. He mentions Outback Steakhouses. He mentions Aborigines and foster beer. Like, because they're from Australia. They have to have all these things in their life. And then for some reason... Mustachios tries to explain that, like, you gotta get, you gotta get moving fast in this. You gotta get up there or you're gonna get the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. And he proceeds to explain what the short end of the stick is. I, I don't know. This is like me trying to explain some Doctor Who time bullshit to you. It makes no sense. He's like, then you got the short end of the stick, and the short end of the stick is the one, two, three. And Rosenblum's like, thank you for explaining that to us and the fans. And I'm like, I'm even more lost than I was before this show started. (laughs) I don't, do you remember any of this? Absolutely not. Not, okay. Well, go back and watch it. So now, they get in the ring and they, and they start doing stuff. And I'm like, the Sheik will be fine. He'll, he'll be fine. Right off the bat. Holy shit. They double clothesline the Sheik. I'm like, is he fucking dead? <laughs> Somebody check on him. Right. And I look down and I'm like, 
oh, thank God, he's alive. I can see him wiggling out of the ring. He's he's like wiggling out of the ring while the bush, one of the one of the men down under, mercilessly, mercilessly is putting the boot to him. And by putting the boot to him, it's like trying to wake a kitten <laughs> with his toes. And I'm like, oh my god! I'm thinking this is going to be the, my favorite match in the history of wrestling ever. So hold, hold on, <laughs> right? So I don't think it could get better than this. So he's outside the ring and he's yelling. The fans are yelling USA, and he's going to leave if they don't get back in in the ring. Uh, he's going to leave. If they don't stop chanting USA. Um, USA, USA, and, I, and I'm laughing at this. I'm like, all right, because I do dig this shtick. Though. I'm always a sucker for the shtick of the fans hate foreigners and their chant USA to them. The USA and the, the, the foreigners are going to be the evil guys. So it's hysterical. But they go, let's cut to the crowd, some of the crowd chanting USA. And literally, as soon as they do that, they cut to this snot-nosed little kid who literally just sneezes straight into his hand. And then proceeds to wipe it on his shirt. And I'm like, this, well, that sums up USA right there. So basically they, they get back in before they count it out. And she gets the hot tag and he goes crazy. And he basically does a kick and then tags back out. (laughs) I'm like, God, I love this match, Joe. I love this match. So that like uh Volkov is doing the heavy lifting. Um but then they they tag Sheik back in. And half the time they're not even tagging and the announcers are even saying, "Did the ref see that tag? Well, they're letting it go anyway." So, <laughs> so like they're just switching out without tagging. So now Sheik gets in there and puts the camel clutch on one of the men down under. And He's got him, and he's you can see it in his face that he's giving it his all. So after about 30 seconds of the camel clutch, literally Sheik goes into the corner and sits on the second turnbuckle because he's gassed after the camel clutch while Volkov is doing a match. And they, they're trying to camera work it so you can't see Sheik sitting on the second rope, rope getting his, his breather. Um, so... Volkov, in the course of this, pulls out a foreign object. And Joe, there's not enough foreign objects in wrestling anymore. I just I agree. Because I don't know. The ref doing a piss poor job of checking, which is his job. And he gets it and he goes to use it and he accidentally hits he accidentally hits Sheik with it. He hits Sheik. I thought he was dead again. And then, like, you know, the the uh the bushwhackers win, and now the Iron, uh, Iron Sheik and Volkov are going to fight. They shove each other really hard. And by really hard, I mean the whole kitten thing again. <laughs> but then they hug. And, you know, Iran and Russia are friends again. And I was like, in the history of everything you've showed me, Joe, right? this is my favorite technical match now, so far. I, I do want to say that this, uh, that match in particular um, mm-hmm. from... Uh, this <laughs> was given by, uh, Brad's brother, Dave Meltzer, uh, a rating of an absolute zero. What? Right. And then his, uh, compatriot and cohort, Brian Alvarez, uh, said that it's minus more stars in, than there are in the entire universe. I'm with that guy. All right. I'm with that guy. The, literally, this match is Van Gogh's Starry Night, Joe. <laughs> 
That's how many. That's what I see when I see wrestling. Okay. It's this match. So now we cut to earlier tonight because they have security cameras everywhere at casinos, Joe. They do. That's what they, that's what they keep telling us. So Charlie, Tully Blanchard is getting out of his limo. And somebody, and I guess it's Sweet Stan Lane, they explain later, just beats him up and tries to shove him into the trunk for no apparent reason. Right. And, and I mean, it was just a match. They were just having a match, Joe. But now, now it's, now I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Now it's personal. So I found that, I was like, that's hysterical. And he's, he's going off. And I have to give credit. I thought Tully Blanchard just didn't care right in the beginning, but he crescendoed in his, in his promo. And he's talking about like how he's going to get him with an intensity. And this guy, Sweet Stan Lane, didn't have, didn't, rode a wave from Jim Clarinet and somebody else because his friend was a champ. And he had the tidal wave because of the four horse. And he goes, and I was like, all right, that was actually a good, like, like segue into a promo and he actually did look like he got hurt it looked like his lip was busted a little bit but mm. that might have been the budget of heroes of wrestling giving him some makeup i don't know I, maybe he got hurt thro- getting thrown into to the the actual trunk or whatever but uh sweet stan lane comes out and gives himself his own intro and I, for, he calls himself the gangster of the gangster of love which i fi- i find hysterical and that uh, Tully Blanchard is was preaching in tents. Was he actually like a a reverend preaching in tents across the country? All right. So uh, the legitimate backstory of this: Tully Blanchard uh, left the NWA in 1988 to go to the World Wrestling Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, less than a year into his run, he was fired. For uh, cocaine use. Now keep in mind, Todd, he was fired from the World Wrestling Federation <laughs> in 1989 for his cocaine use. That's a lot of cocaine. Okay. Now he was scheduled uh, to then go back to the NWA, but it was leaked to the NWA, and this was before the this was really before the internet and really dirt sheets got this sort of stuff out. Um, so it gets leaked to the NWA that he got fired from the WWF because of the coke te- because of the cocaine abuse. So they pulled the offer from the table. Um, Tully Blanchard essentially at that point is wrestling on what is referred to on as outlaw and mud shows. About a year later, he finds Jesus, goes in the Seven Hundred Club, and outs everyone who cheated on their wives from 1983 to 1989 in the world of professional wrestling. <laughs> Fantastic. So he only outed like two or three people. It was an hour-long show, Todd. I think they had to do a two-parter. Um, <laughs> wow. But then he became a preacher, um, occasionally wrestling in events like this. Stan Lane, on the other hand, nod to my friend Bix, the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair, uh retired from wrestling in 1992 or 1993 rather after a hair weave that he got went bad <laughs> oh my God. got a job as an announcer in the world wrestling entertainment and i think still to this day does announcing for speedboat races on espn 
Yes, because he said in this, I've gone on to be on ESPN. And I watch ESPN, Joe. But you know what? Now that you mention it, my my speedboat uh, racing on my DVR, I haven't been caught up on it lately. You're you're about 17 years behind. <laughs> That's right. So any day now. So I want to watch the history of his hair weave in, uh, in all this. So once again, another great match. But Tully wins... Because I have no idea. And they show us this. They're like, let's show you. Like, for some reason, they're both their, 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 their shoulders are down and Stan thinks he's won and Tully ends, the ref ends up saying Tully wins. And they're like, well, let's go to the video. And they're showing the video and they're, and the two announcers are trying to talk about the, the angle that they're giving them. And they're like, there's no, like, you can't see it. All you can see is feet and crotches in this, in this shot. <laughs> and there's like, <laughs> A three count and somebody wins. And so they go, now we have the good angle, Joe. And by good angle, they mean less shitty angle. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still shitty, Joe. Cause shocking, the camera work on this is still, like, they're still working out the kinks halfway through <laughs> this match. So apparently, he, the, when he kicked out the pin, he kicked out, uh, stands was still, I don't know. It was one of those, um, just bullshit things, and I'm like, this is hysterical. That on the next, the next pay per view, Joe, on the next Heroes of Pay per view, this is gonna get rectified, and they're gonna probably fight again. So now we cut to uh, Michael St. John again, who's soon to be legendary to me, Michael St. John. Right. Um, is doing an interview with Jim the Anvil Nightheart, who doesn't want to see no gyrafs or rhinoceroses <laughs> or pythons, because this ain't the San Diego Zoo, son. He wants to fight Jake in the ring. And boy, is he going to get a fight towards the end of this, this, this match. So, um, I love the fact that Michael St. John just gets shoved out of the way as there, as he's leaving from his promo, just, you know, like right off, just, just setting the stage for, for how he is. Now, I want to say, are we on our eighth page of notes? Yes. I'm just, I have notes. Is this too many notes? I could quit now. No, let's keep going. I love it. All right. All right. So the next match we get is the one man gang versus Abdullah, the hemophiliac. No, I mean the butcher. <laughs> so he oh, comes out boy. with some guy named Honest John. I, Honest I, John I, Cheatham. John Cheatham. Oh, is that his name? Yes, Honest John Cheatham. Okay, they didn't say that too well during right. the pay-per-view. But uh, I love the fact that one-man gang is like literally gassed on the way to the ring. <laughs> he comes down the thing. Um, Abdullah the butcher is looking great question mark mm-hmm. i want to hire i want to hire 1999 abdul the butcher to stand next to me okay where i go so i can look better by by proc not much better but slightly better you know i will be that much more handsome um just just oh my god this like just how bad Abdullah looked, his head looked like it was going to crack open at any point. Okay. And start bleeding. And spoiler alert, Joe, it did. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, uh, this is the, I've seen a lot of bloody matches that you've given me over the years. This was just, just hard to watch because first of all, all they did was. Did you mention his opponent? 
Yes, one-man gang. Oh, okay. You got so, gassed on the way down to the ring. All right. Now, listen. Hang on one second before you continue any further. All right. So, Abdullah the Butcher um, was a huge name in Japan in the late 70s and early 80s, right? Uh, he was always kind of like a freelancey sort of guy when, like, oh, we need a storyline where a crazy wild man comes in and the madman from the Sudan or guy with the tan from Canada, Abdullah the Butcher, <laughs> would come in. Abdullah the Butcher uh, would later go on to now sadly close, open up a Chinese food slash house of ribs place in the greater Georgia area. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abdullah Butcher also currently is of uh, notoriety uh, for continuing to wrestle up until the last couple years and spreading his hepatitis C far across the world. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, one man gang, on the other hand, uh, was uh, one of those guys in the early '80s who was brought in as a foil for Hulk Hogan. But Todd, you might enjoy him better as his second World Wrestling Entertainment gimmick, Akeem the African Dream, where Wait, his manager, the Doctor of Style Slick, held a ceremony with stereotypical natives dancing around a barrel of fire on a set of a street where. This man, one man gang, came out wearing a yellow and blue dashiki with one of those big hats, Mm -hmm. and he had found his African roots and was now a jive-talking black man. Wrestling! It was a different time, Joe. That's right. It's a different time, and you can't judge. So... While this is going on, they come outside the ring and they're bleeding all over everything. Mustachio had to get away and he actually kicked his mic out so we didn't hear him for a while. So they weren't talking over each other, which is fantastic. So um, now Abdul pulls out his fork. Right. Oh, and they start, oh, jeez. Geez, like, I was disgusted by the end of this. <laughs> I really was. This is like one of the, like, just two fit-looking men. Just bleeding all over each other with a chain and a fork. I'm like, I don't even know. At one point, Abdul Abdullah is is literally wiping the blood off his face and eating it. And I'm like, when you gave me the time code, you couldn't have got me past this. Now, again, Todd, it's to, to, to pull the spoilers back on this, folks. I don't uh, care. Todd, I, I do give Todd time codes to kind of cut through some of these matches, you know? Like, there's an entire match that we just completely skipped on the show. Just There's no mention of it, no reference of it. It just disappeared, right? Right. Uh, certain matches, though, like the Bushwhackers against Sheik and Volkov. Uh, the match a little bit later on. But this one, I'm looking at it, I'm like, uh, they kind of get right to it. Um, it's kind of an anomaly on the show. Uh, this is staying in. Mm-hmm. So, I just basically, like I said, just, I don't even remember who won, because I was just disgusted. I was literally, like, feeling ill at this point, watching this match. So, right. But that's neither. Now, here is one of the high points of the show, Joe. All right. We cut to Lou Albano, Cowboy Bob Orton, and Snooka playing cards. Mm-hmm. And this is where I get angry. <laughs> right? <laughs> because once, one, it's it's great. But two, they're in a casino. And as a gambler, just all the things they have wrong in this scene is just, just boiling my blood. <laughs> like, they're sitting at literally, like, a restaurant table 
with the the tarp over it, which is a blackjack table, which I don't understand how four. And there's a third, there's a fourth guy who I don't know who he is, is sitting there. So I don't know. Are they playing poker? Are they playing blackjack? Cowboy Bob Orton has all the chips, but it looks like they have two cards down. So is Bob Orton being the dealer? Like, like, honest to God, Joe, this got me hot. Just, just that. That I, I couldn't figure out the gambling aspect of it. I was too focused on it. I was like, what is this even? But then, um, Lou's like, oh, what's going on? And Bob, Bob, what's this? And Bob stands up and he pulls a card out of his, out of his belt. And it's, and he's like, he's, he's a no good cheating. So like, they're going at it and everything. I'm like, so now there's real stakes in this match, Joe, cause it's cheating at cards. And when you got a cowboy and cheating at cards, somebody's got to die. <laughs> so, so I'm crying at this cause how cheap it is. And I still can't figure out, they might've been playing Mahjong at one point, but I, I don't know. They so, switched games in the middle of what they were doing. Right. He's he's playing checkers and everybody is playing chess or something. So now they cut to 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 to, to Bob Orton and he's going to do his promo. And at this point the guy with the camcorder who cut the promo doesn't know how to work the zoom button and it zooms in or out about 7 times on his face. Like, you know, like your uncle who's videotaping the birthday party doesn't know and I'm like more of that quality camera work I've come to expect from Heroes of Wrestling, Joe. And he's talking about like this game and Lou Albano, the, the, who put him in charge of the, as the commissioner. It's going to be the worst thing ever. And then my favorite thing that he does is he blames somehow Lou planted that card in his belt. As a, and I love when a cheater does that. And this this is the first guy who's who, he's denying cheating at cards. Because what kind of guy would talk about cheating when it comes to gambling? I have no idea, Todd. <laughs> Only a madman. <laughs> so, and he also said that he that that doing that sticking that card in his belt had gotten Cowboy Bob Orton's dander up. And I'm like, it's 1999, and he's talking about his dander. Right. This is fantastic. And he's gonna slap. He's going to slap him around if he gets his nose in the match. Well, guess what? <laughs> he gets his nose in the match. So the next match is Cowboy Bob Orton versus Jimmy Fly, Jimmy Superfly Snooker and Lou Albano. And right off the bat, I just want to say, Bob Orton, no cast. What kind of shit is this, Joe? Now, I will say this, Todd. As of recently, as of two months ago... We have confirmation from his son, Randy Orton, that Bob has re-injured his arm and is back in a cast. I wonder if that has any silver dollars in it. <laughs> so, like, so this match, you know, like, Lou, Lou at one point is interrupting the commentary. And I use the term loosely again, Joe, commentary. He's yelling. And Mustachio's yelling to him, you're not the commish yet. Go back. And 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 you, and with the match and everything, like get out of here, and kind of a way of like saying get out of here, like like let us do our job badly, like we we have enough problems here, we don't we don't need you. So at one point, Lou holds Snooker while he's on the rope, so he so Bob can't pull him off, and he he ends up in, getting involved with the match. So now 
Bob chases him across the ring and ends up hitting his elbow on the ring post, Joe. And I think that might have what, what it re-injured his arm and he needs the cast because I felt so bad. It's like if you had the cast on, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And Snooker hits the, the super fly leap, which I didn't think I was going to see. The high fly and Snooker. It was good to see him doing that again. So Snooker wins the match and Bob's in the, Bob's in the ring and just the chant, the, the chant that starts to Bob is I think they were saying Bob is a maggot. Oh, yes, yes. They were saying Bob is a maggot. And, uh, I'm like, now, just because I, I want to be sensitive about this, is Bob a uh, homosexual, or are they just yelling that because it's cruel in that 1999 time? Uh, it's what you would yell at people who you did not like uh, in the 90s, yes. All right, well, I was just thinking maybe, like, at this time, it's, you know, he was, and it slipped up, but then you said he had a son recently, right? That You just said that in the well, podcast. Well, no, his son is Randy Orton, the, you know, world wrestling entertainer. That's the same. He's related. Yes. Wait a minute. Wait. Are you <laughs> I, saying? I, I really hope you're joking around. With with a name as common as Orton in wrestling. No, I I figured they were. I, I didn't know he might have been his grandson for all I knew though. Right. Like, but I, I did not know that. So. But uh, now let's see what do we got here. I'm looking at my my, my notes. Um. Whew, okay. Now. We're to the part where we cut to a promo. Right. With with Michael St. John. Legendary Michael St. John from here on out. Okay. And Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh, I forgot Jake was on this event. I, I know you could. I know you could. So now Jake comes out and... And my, Michael is trying to talk. And Jake just immediately goes in. And... I think maybe there might be something wrong with Jake because I think he's slurring his words a bit. Okay. But he comes in and he does something you've done to me on the podcast and I now have it ingrained in my brain. All right, good. Where he comes out and he's pulling. First of all, it's not Jake the Snake Roberts, but it's wrestling Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. (laughs) That's all I see at this point. Oh, <laughs> right. Can you see it? At yes, of course. Okay. Can, so I'm like, oh, he's out there and he's like, he's like, you, know, you don't want to play cards with me. You want to know why? I cheat. You got 21. I got 22. You got blackjack. I got two of those too. You got aces and eights. Maybe I got a couple of those. And I'm like, Joe, when I tweeted that the other night, I I could not stop laughing. I could not. I was I had to pause it because I was crying, right? And just like Michael St. John is trying and he can't get anything. And he's like, you see that over there, John? That's a big pile of snake. And at one point, Michael tries to talk, but then he just goes, Oh, like, and I cracked up. I'm like, oh my God, it's so, he's so out of his element. He's out of his depth. He doesn't know what to do. And the snake, and, and then like there, I, I honestly think the cameraman, this isn't shitty camera work anymore. He's got the camera on the snake. Cause I think his, uh, Carl is just all over the place. 
Carl the Snake Roberts. <laughs> he, he's like, go, and he's like, hey, cameraman, get your ass up here. <laughs> Film some of this primo stuff. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on, because now the tears are running down my face. And he just leaves, and there's, there is... Michael St. Uh, just he's he's a gay aghast. He's he doesn't know what's happened. So now we cut to the match, and I'm like, oh, this is this is going to be a good match after seeing that promo. Joe, what I thought was not what I got. It was way more, <laughs> way way, more. way way more. So Jim the Anvil Nightheart comes out now. They mentioned that he played for the Raiders. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, yeah, he played for the Oakland Raiders back in the day, sure. Um, Had to be like the mid-70s, maybe? Right, which was a little before my time for watching a lot of football, because um, I was like four. <laughs> but, no uh, excuses. Right, so, so Jim comes out, and now Jake comes down, and he gingerly slaps the snake on the corner of the ring, and then throws it in. Just, you're like, oh my god, that poor snake. That poor snake. Then he just wanders off. He wanders back up the ramp and out and away from the ring. And now the announcers are like, this is psychology. No, this is psychotic. There's a slight difference in mustachio. He's playing right? mind games with the anvil. <laughs> no, he's playing mind games with himself at this point. So he comes running out with his shirt off now after a few, like, like a few seconds. I, I don't know what's going on. He's wandering around the ring. He's, he's, you know, looking at fans, high five them. He grabs some lady's hands and he starts rubbing his own chest with them. And at this point, Joe, it starts to take a dark turn for me. What? This starts, I'm like, this could be bad. Um, they're, they're wrestling and, and I don't know if Jim the Anvil Nightheart is a nice guy, a terrible guy, or what. But I genuinely feel bad for Jim at this point, and he's got to wrestle this guy, and it's atrocious. It's absolutely god awful. Jake is stumbling around the ring, and he does a reversal that is ridiculous. It's he, like Jim's got him, and he and he just turns around. And he's like looking at his hand, and he does the reversal, and Rosenblum literally says that that's a beautiful. Beautiful reversal by by Jake the Snake. And I'm like, how do you sell this garbage? How do you, as an announcer, what I'm seeing in the ring, and I feel bad because at one point, Jake tries to give Jim the DDT, and Jim slides out of it because I don't know if, one, he, that wasn't where they were supposed to do the DDT in the, in the match like because it was still early, or two, he didn't want his neck broke. Well, like, you do the a... you do the deal where it's like, oh, you know, you're you're messing around with Jake, you're messing around with Jake, and then all of a sudden he grabs you, and just like that he can get you with the DDT, and the guy gets out of it. That I'm sure is what the spot was supposed to be. Right. So th- that's going on now. The snake is getting out of the bag, and he's he, and and J- Jake just pulls it out of the bag like that's supposed to be when he wins, I guess, and put it on Jim or whatever. But now, like. Uh, J- Jim is trying to trying to like fake run away, and he, he he looks like he doesn't know what to do at all. And I'm like, holy shit! So now King Kong Bundy 
Oh, well, actually, first, I'm thinking, like, now first, uh, Jake has the snake between his legs. Seductively, he's laying on the mat, kissing it and licking its face. And uh, I don't know. So Bundy comes out, and it's going to happen. And Yokozuna comes out, and it's a tag match. And there's some guy they're calling Mini King Kong Bundy. And while this is going on, he's pleading. He's I don't know what he's doing. He's literally got his hands like he's praying with Jim the Anvil Nightheart. And I could only imagine he's like, this guy is the guy who runs the program. And he's like, do something so this doesn't implode. And they turn it into a tag match. And Joe, I don't know what happened. I don't, they're pulling Jake the Snake's boots off and beating him with them. And it's going on. And in the end, they end up, Yokozuna ends up winning. And this guy who's the mini King Kong get, gets the snake on him. It, it is by far one of the most baffling, crazy things I have ever seen in my entire life watching wrestling, with, by the long history of watching wrestling. Do you have any insight to what happened there? Okay. Um, obviously Jake was in no condition to perform. Got that. However, uh, based on the slipshod organization of Heroes of Wrestling, um, th- they let Jake go to the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of things, when they're like, okay, now it's too bad, that's when they attempted to make it into the tag team match by merging the two main events together, the Yoko and King Kong Bundy match, which we've seen promos for the entirety of the show that it's a one-on-one encounter between these two behemoths. And the thousand-pound match, yeah. Right. As you said before, Jim the Anvil Nightheart in a very bad spot, not knowing what to do, trying to make the best out of whatever's going on, uh, out of this, and even still at that point, um, it, it's just, you know, obviously there's not really much more else to say because everything is right there. Jake the Snake Roberts is in no condition to live, let alone complete in a professional wrestling match, and they did not scrap the match. They could have filmed something backstage where Jake gets attacked and do a make good some other way. Um, whatever it was, but to let Jake go out there in the condition that he was in is, to me, one of the most ultimate signs of negligence. Now, obviously, at the time, this was ridiculous. One of the most legendarily bad things. I had a friend of mine, Steve, who uh, we'd just be hanging out, and he would mimic Jake's entire entrance. Like, when (laughs) he comes out and he's mocking that he's carrying the snake... Then he would leave, and he would come back with no shirt on. Then he would come back, and he and he would just mimic the entire entrance. Because we used to watch the show specifically from the Jake promo to the end of the show all the time. Mm-hmm. We would watch it at least once a week. Ugh. Ugh. I I don't know what to say about that match. Like I I was like when I literally say I was torn because I thought it was hysterical. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, someone could die or get killed yes. or like crippled. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And how this got as far as it did, like the only thing worse would be to see Jake the Snake wrestle, uh, peeking out of the curtain, stumbling around junk Scott Hall at the time. Like right. that would be. Like, just make that match happen at Heroes of Wrestling 2, which probably did happen, right? No. 
No, you're saying this never went any further? No. Oh, my God. This was the end of the line for this promotion. Um, They had picked up a bunch of people, for, you know, to, to put the show on. As, a lot of the announcers were folks from, like, the local Memphis, Mississippi, Tennessee area. Mm -hmm. But the wrestlers, obviously, as we've mentioned many times, were people who just got skipped over by WWF and WCW at that time, where WWF was just, like, firing on all, all cylinders, WCW was a disaster, and they had something to the tune of, like, 200-plus wrestlers under contract, and, like, these are the guys that s escaped that net. Right. But they were too much of a mess to get hired by the mess of a company that was uh, WCW. Ugh. Just amazing. It is one of the, I can understand why it's legendary and why you gave it to me. And I enjoyed it and hated it all at the same time. Right. Interesting choice, Joe. Uh, next, next Gallifrey Birds, I'll give you a little bit of a tease. It's similar in tone, but much more fun. Oh, good. Yes. I enjoyed it. Um, for the Jake the Snake promo, yes, was might be one of my favorite things that you've shown me this this all eleven Gallifrey birds, and it will stick with me. And like I said, the Sheik match is my favorite technical match of all time. I'm gl I'm gl I'm glad that I was able to give you the sort of wrestling that you enjoy. That I've known, which should just be the way wrestling is, and I'm glad I can give you a Doctor Who that you can watch and not vomit right that's not that i vomited like in terror and whatever but it was just like meh, meh, whatever you know right next one should be pretty interesting because there is something that, that's in your wheelhouse so it better be right it better be so, all right so i think that wraps up gallifrey birds sure um soon to be named network.com soon to be named network.tumblr.com uh, you know, it's Black Friday, Cyber Monday as you're listening to this. Uh, if you enjoyed this, uh, definitely go check out, uh, on the website, longboxheroes.com. Our Amazon link, purchase, uh, all of your Christmassy holiday stuff through there. And of course, as well, the Quantum and Woody contest that's going on for another two weeks or so, give or take. Uh, leave an iTunes review on the main show, and, uh, you'll be entered in for that, uh, Quantum and Woody, one of two Quantum and Woody prize packs. Right. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to episode 158 of Longbox Heroes After Dark, Gattle Freybirds, Roman numeral number 11. And we will see you all here next week. Bye.